So earlier this week, I was getting my oil changed, uh, and I was in the waiting room, and there was a movie on TV in the waiting room, and I couldn't, I could not identify the movie at first. Um, but then all of a sudden, I knew I had seen it before. I knew I had seen it before, but I couldn't, I couldn't truly identify it. Um, I ended up realizing later it was the Devil's Advocate, but I was, I was there right at, at the that pinnacle moment of the movie, the best scene in the movie. And I had seen it before. I don't know when I had seen it. Um, But it's that point in the movie where Al Pacino wraps up the devil's advocate with one of the best soliloquies of all time, of all time. Um, And that's why I knew I had seen it before, because I remembered that monologue at the end. It's fantastic. It's Also the part of the movie where Keanu Reeves finally stops talking, which is always good in any movie, (laughs) ever. Um, But the part that matters the most is Pacino, in in this very Pacino-esque way, speaks for the devil. He says, I don't make things happen. It, It doesn't work that way. I'm not some puppeteer. It is all free will. Free will is like butterflies' wings. Once you touch them, they can't get off the ground anymore. I don't pull the strings. I just set the stage. You pull your own strings, Pacino says. The power of that scene is that we finally get to see evil enfleshed. What's captivating is we get to see the the devil incarnate. Normally, when we get to confront evil or temptation, it is much more subtle than that. I mean, it's normally just kind of hidden. It's not quite as obvious. And if we're honest, it's not the big temptations at all that get us. It's the smaller, everyday compromises. You know you deserve it. Go ahead. You deserve it. Nobody's ever going to know. No one really appreciates you the way they should. All of those subtle temptations, those are the ones that pull our strings. And if we're honest... We spend most of our lives trying to sort out truth from evil. And so this Pacino moment is so refreshing to us. Because finally, finally, finally we see evil for what it is. And we long for it. There is this weird, perverted grace in that revelation. It's like the clickbait draw to news articles on your Facebook page. It's, I would say, the real reason why we turn on CNN every morning, that perverted longing to see evil unmasked. Maybe today will be the day when the curtain is pulled back. The same way we yearn to see God made plain and obvious to us, we yearn to see evil unmasked. Our gospel reading this morning is Matthew's Pacino moment. It is this unmasking of evil in our midst. It's it's one of the rare times in the Bible when we get to see evil for what it is. 
Matthew even brings up this character's name, Satan or the devil. It depends on the translation, and it really doesn't matter which word we use. One's derived from the Greek, one from the Hebrew, but they both mean accuser. He names that person for who he is, the tempter. The weird thing is that this moment is not at the end of the story. It's not the climactic moment 15 minutes before the credit rolls at the end of the gospel. No, Matthew's story puts it up front as though it's something he wants us to know about Jesus before we get any farther down the road of following him. He gives us this Pacino moment as an introduction to who Jesus is. Satan becomes a means to introducing us to Jesus. I mean, we're still just in the introductory phases of Matthew's gospel. Chapter 1, Israel shows up. Matthew introduces us to Jesus' genealogy and says, in shorthand, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise to Israel. Chapter 2, the Magi show up. And he says, not just the fulfillment of the promise of Israel, but he is the savior to all the world. And these foreigners, too, come to worship. Chapter 3, God shows up really visibly. Jesus is baptized and the heavens part. And God says in this audible voice, this is my son. God shows up unmistakable to show that Jesus is not just the savior of all mankind, saving us from God. Jesus is God. He is me. I am him. And then finally, chapter four, Satan shows up. Doesn't feel like the the next person to show up. It's our next introduction to who Jesus is. And it's the tempter, the devil. It's evil. It's our Pacino moment. Did you notice the first phrase in the gospel reading? The spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. Does that strike you as odd at all? The spirit leads Jesus directly into the path of temptation, says Matthew. And and then Satan shows up. This is the next introduction that Matthew would have us know about Jesus. Following Jesus will put us face to face with our deepest temptations. The Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted, and those of us who follow Jesus will get our Pacino moment too. Because one of the things that Jesus does like no one else is he reveals evil for what it is. The Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness where he's confronted by these temptations. And for all of us who follow Jesus, we, we should know up front, right at the beginning of the journey, that following Jesus will cause us to face our deepest temptations, which is, which is counterintuitive to us. Because after all, most of us go to church to be pulled up out of the dark and murky waters of our temptation. Up to the surface where we can breathe again and be reminded that that's not who we are. 
That's not who God has called us to be. It's also kind of counterintuitive because it's exhausting to face our temptations. It's exhausting to have to always do battle with the things outside of us and inside of us. And so we go to church as kind of an escape from that, to transcend that, to get into some kind of ethereal, cerebral, divine moment. And we can find out often that the Spirit has driven us to face those things that tempt us most. Third, it's, it's counterintuitive because of the prayer we pray every single week. Jesus teaches his disciples the phrase in a string of phrases, lead us not into temptation. And then we follow Jesus and the same spirit that led him, and we find ourselves facing temptation. Note on the fourth Sunday of Lent here, the first temptation is to ignore our temptation. Following Jesus in this wilderness, we will be forced to confront those temptations that surround us. I was teaching a class on the Lord's Prayer a couple of summers ago, and we were talking line by line through this prayer. And so, our Father, and we talked about that a little bit, and who art in heaven, and we talked about that for a little bit. And we got a good way through the prayer, and we got to this line, lead us not into temptation, and a woman in the class who had just been baptized like six months before, she said, you know, I get to that line and every time it chokes up inside of me. I can't say it. I just cannot say it. Lead us not into temptation. And so I listened and I beckoned her to tell me more about what she meant by that. And she said, well, the problem is I didn't really know temptation at all until I started following Jesus. It was just life. That's all it was. It was just life. I just lived life. And life was pretty good. And then I started following Jesus, and suddenly life was full of temptation. Life was all of a sudden full of the temptation to neglect community. Until I met Jesus, I read a book in my PJs on Sunday morning. And now every Sunday morning, I am brought face to face with that same temptation. That's really my only day to sleep in and to neglect community. It was just life before I met Jesus. She said, before I met Jesus, I just cut off relationships when they weren't good for me. Now my life is full of temptation to just write people off and not seek reconciliation. Before it was just life. I could just cut off. I could just turn my back on those who had hurt me or had accused me of hurting them. Nothing was lost. Another broken relationship. Doesn't matter. And then I started to follow Jesus, and everything changed. I started to actually mulling over what I had said. I started tracing back through my faults. I started not being able to shake that feeling until I reconciled and every subsequent difficult relationship made me come face to face with my temptation to be right over my temptation to love. 
It was just life before I met Jesus. She said, after meeting Jesus, all of a sudden I'm brought face to face with the temptation to make life all about me. Until I met Jesus, it was my schedule and my politics and my money and my family and my life. Personal autonomy and prosperity was the key to my happiness. But now, now that I've met Jesus, I am daily tempted to only understand and accept my own worldview. I'm daily tempted to hoard my possessions and my money for my financial planning to gain some kind of semblance of control over my life. I'm daily tempted to give to God only the parts of me that I can orchestrate rather than giving until it hurts me. She said these things were just life until I met Jesus. And I had to start confronting the temptations for what they were. She said, it's just hard for me to say, lead us not into temptation because it seems like Jesus is leading me through temptation. Such is this Lenten wilderness journey that we're on. Following Jesus will put us face to face with those temptations that yearn for our attention. And by God's grace, Jesus will find a way to lead us through it. This is why um, the great 19th century theologian Soren Kierkegaard, um, he said, it's not the Christian ideals that are the problem. It's actually doing them. Worship the Lord your God is a great ideal until Sunday morning at 10 a.m. Forgiving those who hurt you is a great ideal until you're hurt to the point that forgiveness seems impossible. Loving your neighbor is a great ideal until you meet that neighbor. Trusting in God and giving until it hurts is a great ideal until you start confiding in your financial planner or reading self-help books rather than listening to Jesus. Here's the deal. Jesus does lead us out of temptation. He does. Jesus leads us away from the temptation of ignoring our temptations by putting us face to face with those things that tempt us. And deep down, you know that is good news. You know that because you are also yearning for your Pacino moment, even though you're scared to death of it, even though seeing evil unmasked is just as petrifying as seeing God unmasked. And most of the time when it's unmasked, it's in those subtle temptations. Those are the ones that pull our strings. Like pride, for instance. Pride, the church mothers and fathers tell us, is the most insidious of sins because it's the one that's most likely to be turned into a virtue. Especially for us, especially today, in this post-Freudian world where everything centers on building up our self-esteem and our self, the last thing we want to do is to erode someone's notion of self 
Barnes and Noble's largest section is self-help. After all, what's wrong with a little bit of pride? What's wrong with doing the hard labor and being proud of the results? What's wrong with others finally taking notice at all the work you've done, finally giving credit where credit is due? I would like to confess to you this morning. Will you receive my confession? Last week was a little weird for me. I received a phone call from someone I respect deeply who lives in a different state, a state that I love dearly, someone who has a stellar reputation, someone who I'd want to be associated with. And he offered me a job a really good job. In fact, a job I hold is probably the pinnacle of where my experience is taking me. A job that holds within it notoriety and esteem and clout among my colleagues. I'd get to hang out with folks that I long to be. I would, I would be set up well for success. I got a call and I loved it. I began to dream about it, to chew on it. I couldn't stop daydreaming about the possibilities of this. I couldn't stop smirking at the thought of what people would think when they found out I was called. And just turn something like this down would just be foolish. I should be honored. And for about three days, I got where God has, I forgot where God has called me to be in this time and in this place. I forgot the work that's been done and the work that's yet to be done. You know, pride, it's the most insidious of all the sins, they say, because it's the one that's most likely to be turned into a virtue. Truth be told, I don't know if I'd identify pride as a sin. I'm a pretty independent, confident person. If it weren't for Jesus, it seems like a healthy dose of pride can motivate the best in us and help humanity reach our highest peaks. Pride is the most insidious of all the sins. Deep down, we are all yearning for truth. We are all yearning to know virtue from temptation. Deep down, we are all yearning for our Pacino moment when evil will be unmasked and unveiled. The good news is that Jesus, leading us by the gift of the Spirit, will unmask evil for what it is day by day as we follow him in this wilderness. That's why John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, logged temptation as a means of grace. Of course, prayers on that list and reading scripture and meeting in community and taking communion and singing... And then temptation. One of these things is not like the other. God's grace is even more perverted than our temptations, Wesley says, because in having to confront them, 
God refines us and makes us better than who we are. They become a means of perfecting us over time. God leading us to face our temptations is one way God loves us into being who God's created us to be. And so as the band takes their place, in the silence and in the solitude of our worship today, in the stillness of morning prayer throughout the week, in the stillness of your car, in the confidence of the same spirit that led Jesus into the wilderness, be tempted. Confront your temptations and allow Jesus to lead you through them. And as you do, you will see the Spirit leading all of us away from temptation to avoid the very places where God will meet us. Would you stand and sing with me?